0: Beloved, the late British American author and journalist Christopher Hitchens described himself not as an atheist, he self-described himself as an anti-theist, stating even more strongly his animosity towards God. He wrote his final book entitled Mortality in uh, the end of 2010 and 2011 as he was dying of cancer. He called... 2011 in probably the most famous quote from the book, his year of living dyingly. It was interesting, he began his life, or in his formative years, as a Marxist and socialist. He kind of gravitated away from that towards the end of his life. Even as he approached the end of his life, his later years, he began to have more sound thinking, even in some areas such as the uh, humanity of babies in the womb, but In the most ultimate and eternal significant area, in terms of his understanding of God, he didn't budge, sadly, an inch. In the book, Mortality, he said this, quote, "...I have more than once in my lifetime woken up feeling like death, but nothing prepared me for the early morning in June when I came to the conscious feeling as if I were actually shackled to my own corpse." The whole cave of my chest and thorax seemed to have been hollowed out and then refilled with slow, drying cement. I'm badly oppressed by the gnawing sense of waste, he wrote. I had real plans for my next decade, and I'd felt that I'd worked hard enough to earn it. Will I really not live to see my children married, to watch the World Trade Center rise again? But I understand this sort of non-thinking for what it is, sentimentality and self-pity, end quote. Uh, How tragic, how sad, how wrong, how hopeless. According to his wife, Carol Hitchens spent his final months of his life in an in-between state. She wrote this, Everything was as it should be, except that it wasn't. We were living in two worlds. The old one, which never seemed more beautiful, had not yet vanished, and the new one, about which we knew little except to fear it had not yet arrived. Again, how sad, how tragic. Regarding the purpose and meaning of life, which is the, you see and read and hear and feel the vacuum that came out of those previous quotes. British evolutionist and author Richard Dawkins, and I'm not intentionally trying to pick on Brits, these are just two quotes that came about. Dawkins wrote in his book, River Out of Eden, a Darwinian view of life, these words, again in the context of the purpose and meaning or lack thereof of life. There is at bottom no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. We are machines for propagating DNA. It's every living object's sole reason for being, end quote. Uh, Beloved, again, how sad, how tragic, how hopeless. You see, pagans can count, but they can't give an account. They can't even give an explanation for why they can count. Uh, The unsaved says that stealing is wrong, but he or she can't say, they can't give a justifying reason why it is wrong. One can ask the question, what is good and why is it good? Again, the unsaved have no answer. We know, however, good is good because God declares what is good. And in his revealed will in scripture, he tells us precisely what is good. You see, there are only two worldviews, period, period. There is either the worldview where one worships God, the sovereign God of the Bible as creator, or one worships the little self-proclaimed lowercase God that is staring back at them in the mirror. There are only two religions. There is the religion of human effort and the religion of divine accomplishment. There are only two paths. There are only two ways. There are only two birth-death combinations. You are either born twice and will only die once, or you are born only once and will die twice. There are only two ultimate fathers, God or Satan. Every one of us here is you are either a child of God or you are a child of Satan. There are only two kinds of people, again, sitting here today, either sons and daughters of Abel or sons and daughters of Cain. Beloved, please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. Our passage this morning are verses 3 and 4. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1 to set the stage. Listen, beloved, as I read the word of God in your hearing. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. By faith, We understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. Beloved, this is the word of God read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now, last week we saw, and we can even see this here, Then in verses 1 and 2, the author gives kind of a brief synopsis definition of faith. It's really the nature of faith. Verse 3, in one sense, could be understood as the beginning of faith. It begins with creation. This morning, as we look in a little more detail at verse 3 and then verse 4, we see two voices. We see the voice of God in verse 3 and the voice of Abel in Verse four, and if we want to consider this in the context of the original writing of the Hebrews author to this group of Jewish Christians, the congregation to whom the author is writing, I draw your attention back to verse thirty-four in chapter ten, where the author, in word of exhortation and commendation to the congregation, said this: Hebrews ten thirty-four, you showed sympathy to the prisoners. And accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. So, beloved, here this morning, may we have the word of God impact us in such a way that we would live our lives in a life-sacrificing and property-risking manner for the glory of God. So first, let's look at the first voice, the voice of God that we see in verse 3. And bottom line, we need to understand this. The Bible, the gospel, faith, begins with creation, begins with God as creator. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God. God created the heavens and the earth. And what we see in verse 3 is we have a thinking faith and a speaking God. It begins with that by faith by faith 20 times in hebrews chapter 11 by faith it outlines this incredible roll call of godly men and women that the author brings forward to us beginning with abel here in verse four by way of example after example after example by faith verse three continues we understand so we are the subject of this first by faith in this epic chapter 11. We understand. I mentioned last week. It's the same root word behind understand as the root word for mine. The point here is that it's not a deaf, dumb, and blind faith. It is a thinking faith that is a saving faith. That is the true faith in God. By way of contrast and by way of example. The story is told of a man that went in to see a counselor, and the man's issue was he thought he was dead. He went in and told the counselor, I am dead, I am a dead man. And the counselor responded, well, you climbed the steps to get up to my office, Uh, wouldn't that indicate that you're alive? He said, no, I know I did that, but I'm dead. Uh, The counselor thought further, and he said, well, we're having a conversation right now. Doesn't that mean something? The man said, well, that may be, but I'm still dead. Uh, The author was, excuse me, the counselor was struggling, and he thought of something. He said, well, let me ask you a question. Do dead men bleed? And the man strongly, definitively said, no, dead men do not bleed. So the counselor took out a pin and he pricked the thumb of the man and pushed out the blood. And as the blood was flowing out, the man said, how about that? Dead men bleed. (laughs) Now, Beloved, that is a great picture and a great illustration of the follow the science, deaf, dumb, and blind faith of evolution. But in terms of biblical saving faith, it couldn't be farther from the truth. It is not biblical faith. God says think. He doesn't say leap into oblivion. I mentioned last week that the biblical saving faith by which we understand with our mind is not, to be sure, merely intellectual. And at the same time, it is never less than intellectual. God basically commands us, tells us to start thinking, start thinking biblically, logically, reasonably, and rationally. So continuing here in verse three, by faith we understand what? We understand what's the opening salvo <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> I guess it's an important point. I wanted to get your attention. The opening salvo is we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God. The worlds, tus iones, literally the eons, the ages. What he's describing here, this phrase, the iones, is more comprehensive than the mere cosmos of material space and matter. This is the entire created order. This is the entire space-time matter continuum. It's everything since creation, all the history through the ages. Uh, the English Standard Version translates it the universe. And if we were to think of it of it of as the universe of space, time and matter, that would be a good description. So the worlds, the universe, the cosmos were prepared by God they were rendered fit sound complete they were equipped they were put in order they were arranged God gave them form shape and order so that's all behind the Greek word that's translated as prepared and it flows from what we would see if you would now turn back to Genesis chapter 1 in the very beginning the way in which God opens up his word in the beginning God Created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2. And the earth was formless and void. Tohu wa bohu. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Formless and void. Uh, the initial creation was without boundaries, without separation, without distinction. It was formless and it was void. It was empty. It was that without population. So what we have at the end of verse 2 is a formless watery mass of unorganized material without boundaries. We do have though the building blocks that are all there as part of God's creation. The primordial condition is to be sure at the end of verse 2 incomplete, unfinished, unorganized, and uninhabitable uninhabitable. Thank you. But It is still good. It is not chaotic. There's no reason, no scientific reason to be sure, and even more pressingly, no biblical reason to try to suck thousands and thousands and millions of years out of the white space in between verse 2 and verse 3. It was good. It was incomplete, unfinished, unorganized, and uninhabitable. But... It is prepared by God. It was good. God created the essential elements of time, space, and matter. The voice of God in Genesis 1 and 2, and then specifically we'll see in a moment in verse 3, speaks them into existence. What God does in verse 3 of Genesis chapter 1 is he forms the formless and he fills the void. Look at verse 3. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. So what God does here is God addresses what is formless and void. He speaks, and there is instantaneous transformation. He says two words in the Hebrew, literally, be light, and instantaneously, light spreads from one end of the universe to the other end of the universe. Instantaneously, there is heat, gravity, electromagnetism, nuclear forces, the elementary particles. I ha- had young Master Henry Seacott came up after the first service and asked me an excellent question. He said, he goes, Pastor Clay, he goes, How is it that there was light on day one when God didn't create the sun and the stars until day four? And I said, that's a brilliant, excellent question far beyond your young, tender age. And what God is doing here is what we have is we have what is formless and what is void. And days one through three is where God gives shape, form, and order to what is formless. And he has this divine separation. And then days four through six is where you have the divine population where God begins to fill up Uh, What was empty and void before so the supernatural light that God himself provided from one end of the universe to the other For all first of the three uh, days of creation were there prior to God's creating the Sun and the star Stars and the moon on day four which was part of the population good question great question now Back here, when God creates light, He gives names to both light and to darkness. And even the act of God naming these demonstrates His ownership and His authority over them. This is just fleshing out from the fact that our God, the Creator God of the universe, is not a God of chaos. He is a God of order. It's the same thought that Moses had when he was writing this in Genesis 1, and the same thought the author of Hebrews had in Genesis 11 verse 3 that the apostle Peter had in his second epistle. 2 Peter 3, 5, Peter writes, by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by the water. Or the psalmist in Psalm 33 beginning in verse 6, he wrote, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. Verse 8, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast, end quote. Now, beloved, to be sure, it is a matter of faith to understand this as the origin of creation. At the same time, again, it is reasonable, logical, rational, most infinitely importantly, it is biblical. And I love what Alistair Begg says about the contrasting point. Pastor Begg said, quote, do you think it's any more ridiculous than the idea we all emerged as a result of two pieces of sludge introducing themselves to one another in some slimy pool somewhere in a primordial experience? Or Pastor Begg continues, did DNA all of a sudden wake up and discover itself, end quote. So understand this, any understanding of the origin is a matter of faith. However, one manner of faith is reasonable, reasonable, biblical, and right. The other is not. But back in verse 3 of Hebrews 11, he gives a purpose statement. We understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that What is seen was not made out of things which are visible. This appeals back to the fact that God said, let there be light, be light, and there was light. Seven times in Genesis chapter one, we see the phrase let there be in some form or another because it's describing God's creating the entire universe, cosmos, ages, ex nihilo, out of nothing. He created all that is visible from that which is invisible, and we need God's word to rightly understand this. Imagine if you had an incredibly beautiful masterpiece of art, and it was on display in a room with no windows, and you ushered someone in to observe the grandeur and the beauty of the masterpiece, but there was no light in the room. Now the piece of artwork is still beautiful, would still be beautiful to behold, but without light, there's no way for the observer to discern the beauty and the grandeur of it. Beloved, in the same way, trying to discern the evidence rightly without the light of revelation is like showing the masterpiece of art in a dark room with no light. The evidence is there, but the person has no way to truly understand and appreciate the beauty. Also, Make no mistake, we have a massive amount of evidence. We can travel up north and look at the Grand Canyon and the incredible testimony and the massive amount of evidence that is of the righteous judgment of God when he basically wiped the earth clean all the way down to day three creation rock and started over in judgment against the sin of man, So there is a massive amount of evidence, but in the end, it is a matter of faith. And our faith, again, is reasonable, logical, rational, and most importantly, biblical. And understand this. Why does the author of Hebrews begin with this? Namely, how you hold Genesis, how you understand the origin of creation will hold and impact everything. God, man, sin, judgment, salvation. It will impact how you view marriage, divorce, male and female roles and distinctions. Racism, environmentalism, homosexuality, abortion, and the list goes on. All are impacted by one's views of creation. Our bibliology, theology, soteriology... Christology, pneumatology, eschatology, ecclesiology, all of them are impacted significantly by, believer, man and woman of God, by your understanding and view of Genesis chapters 1 through 11. And by way of illustration, even from the magnificent epistle of Hebrews, remember when the author opens up this incredible letter talking about the Son, in verse 2, The author writes this, In these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son, literally in Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, watch this, through whom also he made the world. So the point that Moses would say, the point Peter would say, the point the author of Hebrews says here, the point God says to us, dear friend, is if you would have him as Redeemer, you must receive him also as Creator. And the situation is unregenerate man, unregenerate woman has forgotten his or her creaturehood. We're like a little child sitting in his father's lap, slapping him in the face, saying, I'll do it myself. And part, beloved, part of our gospel responsibility, one of the first elements of that is to redirect a creature worshiper back to being a creator worshiper. And under the power of the gospel that is able to save the Jew first and the Greek, the same God that spoke the space, time, matter continuum into existence instantaneously is the same God that according to the apostle Paul in Romans four seventeen, gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. Paul's Application there is not talking about the physical way in which God physically spoke all the physical aspects of the universe into existence, but the spiritual aspect of speaking life into the heart of a sinner who is dead in his or her trespasses and putting spiritual life, eternal life, new life where there was no life before. So back on task in Hebrews 11, what is faith? And again, this is the primary theme all the way from 10, verse 38 to chapter 12, verse 2. What is faith? Faith is the assuring substance of things not seen. Or springing from verses 3 and 4 stated another way, faith is a right response to the word of God. No more, no less. Faith responds, biblical faith. Saving faith responds to God's revelation. That is the voice of God in verse 3. We move to the second voice in verse 4, which is namely the voice of Abel. So in this litany of stellar examples of godly men and women that lived under the Old Covenant and some that even lived prior to the Old Covenant, Abel is the first example that the author brings forth. And as we embark on this now in verse 4, there are really four distinct historical periods the author goes from. There's the antediluvian Period, the time before the flood, where we encounter Abel, Enoch, and Noah. And then the patriarchal times with Abraham and Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And then the third period, we could say, is the Mosaic period, where it's namely Moses himself. And then the fourth period is the post-Mosaic period with Rahab as the unique godly woman who was a saved woman harlot who is the one example that springs from the by faith of her uniquely but then even beyond Rahab there'll be a general reference to many other heroes and heroines of the faith some of them named and some unnamed but God starts with Abel and the point is all of these examples they heard the truth they believed the truth they trusted the truth and they obeyed the truth that's the pattern that God lays out for us and understand this beloved these are not examples primarily of extraordinary people these are examples of believing people these are not these are not a mountaintop that you can't climb keep that in mind as we unfold and unpack the riches God has before us and what's amazing in verses three and four we have a built-in outline So the by faith we in verse 3, and then by faith Abel in verse 4. And then in verse 4, you have three clauses, by faith, and then through faith, and through faith. And so what we have for this sub-outline in verse 4 is a description of the faith, the saving faith of Abel. It's a sacrificing faith, and a testing faith, and then finally it is a speaking faith. First, Abel's faith. He had a submissive heart, and active obedience in manifested in a sacrificing heart. Look at the beginning of verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. So, with this, we can turn again back to Genesis 4, or if you're still in Genesis 1, turn forward a few pages. Genesis 4, verse 1. Now, we're coming here, so God, in Genesis 1:1 through 2, 3, you have this kind of panoramic view of all six days of creation. In chapter 2, verse 4, through the end of chapter 2, you have a focused description of the most special day of creation, day 6, when he made man, when he made male and female in his own image, and the beautiful holy sanctity of marriage of a man and woman joined together in one flesh. Genesis chapter 3, of course, captures the tragic situation of the fall. Adam and Eve, in verse 7 of chapter 3, try to cover their nakedness with fig leaves. But man cannot cover the nakedness of his sin. Only God can cover the nakedness and the sin of man. So in verse 21, God covers their nakedness with the skins of animals who had to suffer the loss of life by virtue of their sacrifice for Adam and Eve to be Of course, the great promise in verse 15, when as God was pouring out his judgment on the serpent and on Satan, he gave a word of promise and hope to Adam and Eve that she would give birth to a son who would crush the head of the evil one. And so that leads us into verse 1 of chapter 4, where we read these words. Now, the man had relations with his wife Eve. Literally, the man knew his wife Eve. Uh, it, the original language just says knew. The had relations with, That's, that's really that's, that's a detail that's added by the New American Standard, which should be left to the commentator or the expositor, not to the translator. Uh, ESV just says the man knew his wife Eve. Um, in any event, I think we know what's going on here. And the result of this knowledge is she conceived and gave birth to Cain, and she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. You see, this is a demonstration of the beginning of Eve's faith. Eve remembers the promise that God had given back in chapter 3, verse 15, and she believed that. She thought this was the realization of that promise. She thought that that the son Cain would be the fulfillment of that promise. So it is a demonstration of her early faith, of course, as we will see that she was sadly mistaken regarding the identity. And also, in Genesis 4, you can see the growth, the sanctification of Eve. Here, in verse 1, this is, we could say, it's kind of Arminian Eve, where she says, I've gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. But then, at the end of chapter 4, with the case of Seth, verse 25, she says, God has appointed me another offspring in the place of Abel. So we see, we could say Arminian Eve at the beginning of Genesis 4, and we see Calvinist Eve at the end of chapter 4. And if you want to capture, we could say it was Pelagian Eve back in chapter 3, but I believe we're digressing a little bit here. Bottom line, though, is Eve, Eve, Eve even her mere act of naming Cain, somewhat mistakenly, well, radically mistakenly, and then even with Seth, demonstrates her faith. But now, in verse 2, we move from the first birth, Cain, to the second birth of Abel. And again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Verse 4, and Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. So what we see here is that Abel and Cain give these offerings. What's fascinating is verses 1 through 16, this account that God gives us, that the focus and the majority of the text in these first 16 verses is not on the protagonist Abel, but on the antagonist Cain. God sovereignly chose for whatever reason to even record words from Cain but not record words from Abel. But what is going on here? We understand that this is the backdrop that the author of Hebrews has in mind when he talks about this offering, this sacrificial faith that Abel brought forward to the Lord. Situation here is both Cain and Abel give an offering that's according to their vocation. Both of their vocations, a tiller of the ground and a shepherd of the animals, both are noble. Both vocations are an outworking of God's original creation ordinance. So, as good students of the Word, we can ask the question, Why, even here in Genesis 4, 2 and forward, why does God have regard for Abel? And he gives us answers for this. Even at the very beginning of verse 2, it says, And Abel, excuse me, at the beginning of verse uh, 3, Sorry, in the middle of verse 2. And Abel. And that's the beginning of the sentence. In the Hebrew, they normally start the Hebrew sentence with the verb, and then the subject comes after. But in the original Hebrew, it starts with and Abel. So even here, God is emphasizing Abel. And Abel on his part. So there's a contrast between Abel and Cain. But now we get to where he really shows why God had regard for the offering. It was the firstlings of his flock. This is the first fruits. In other words, he's offering his very best, his best animal, and even the best parts of the animal, and of their fat portions, which just on a side note, that's why you should order a ribeye rather than a (laughs) filet, but in any event. So God does give us indication of why God had regard for Abel in Genesis 4, but then look at verse 5. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So why did God have regard for Abel and not for Cain. Well, what does the text say and what does the text not say? Now, to be sure one of one of the uh, theories, one of the hypotheses is that well, Cain didn't offer a blood sacrifice. We've already seen in verse 21 of chapter 3 there was an animal sacrifice. And we know that it is only a blood sacrifice by which sin may be atoned for, but it doesn't specifically say here in the text that a blood sacrifice was required. And in fact, we do know later on in the Mosaic Law in the Old Covenant, there were grain and vegetable offerings that were right and appropriate. I like what Calvin rightly said about this. He said, Abel's sacrifice was preferred to Cain's for no other reason than it was, quote, sanctified by faith. Beloved, that is the bottom line. We know that when we look at Scripture, we should, as students, as preachers, but even as readers, we want to keep the plain things main and the main things plain. And what is the plain main thing here? What is unequivocal, crystal clear? No confusion, no question, no doubt is the point is the heart. It's internal rather than external. Bottom line, especially as we would apply the commentary of Hebrews 11.4, Abel has faith and Cain does not have faith. By faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice. That is why God regarded Abel in his offering and not Cain in his offering. And even the order, it says the Lord, back in Genesis, the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. And I think what we can take from that is because God had regard for Abel, because of his faith, therefore God had regard for his offering. God accepted Abel's offering because he first accepted Abel. Bottom line, Abel is saved. And in fact, I would say 75% of the first four people that we encounter in Genesis are saved. Adam and Eve. I believe Adam demonstrated his faith when he named his wife Eve, the mother of the living. So, Adam believed God's promise in Genesis 3.15. already mentioned Eve at the beginning of Genesis 4 and the end also had faith. So 75% of the first four people are saved and it goes radically downhill after this. And we can ask one other question. Uh, If Adam and Eve were saved, why does the author of Hebrews start with Abel as his first example rather than Adam or Eve? And I think it's because Abel's... Faith is demonstrated. There's a more demonstrable obedience of his faith. Like the other examples that we will see in chapter 11 of this obedient, enduring faith based on the promise of God. And even more to the point, one of the big themes that the author of Hebrews is bringing to his audience, which God wants you and I to understand, is we have faith in what is unseen, I do believe, again, that Adam and Eve had saving faith, but their saving faith was in what was seen and what was heard. Remember, prior to the fall, God would walk with them in the garden. So a pre-incarnate appearance of the second member of the Trinity would appear in hum- human form and walk with Adam and Eve. So again, I do believe they had saving faith, but their faith was in what was seen, whereas Abel's faith was in what was unseen. Hence, ergo, he is the first example in Hebrews chapter 11. And then, of course, the rest of verse 5 through 11 in Genesis chapter 4, you know the sad situation. Cain rose up and he murdered his brother. He had saved parents. He had a saved brother. Probably had other saved brothers and sisters. There were some, I'm sure, unsaved as well. But despite that, Cain became a murderer. The apostle John, in 1 John 3.12, said, Cain, who was of the evil one, slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. So what we see in Genesis 4 verse 5, watch this, is the literal first seed of the woman becomes the figurative first seed of the serpent. And since that time, there's been two streams going forward. You are either a son or daughter in a sense of Abel or a son or daughter of Cain. And in verse 7, here in Genesis 4, God gives words of a warning. He, even in his grace and mercy, God does, gives a call to repentance even to Cain. Verse 7, God says, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is for you, but you must master it. What God is saying is, sin is thirsting for your blood. And God doesn't, he doesn't, personifies sin here he animalizes sin he's saying sin is like a wild beast waiting to rip you to shreds and friend if you're here this morning not trusting in Christ alone by faith alone and if you leave here defiant against God as your creator as you came in standing just outside the doors is sin it's a fearful monster the demon sin it's waiting for you it's crouching like a beast from hell, sin is waiting to fasten to you again and drag you to the pit with it. And even as we consider, as I mentioned before, there are really only two religions in the world. No matter the label on the bottle of the one, the contents are the same. The alternative, it's poison, it's death. Whether it's the wrong Jesus, the wrong faith or the wrong kind of faith, the wrong sacrifice, etc. The end is the same, death. That's why Solomon wrote in Proverbs 14, verse 12, there is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. Again, there are only two religions, either the religion of the seed of the woman or the religion of the seed of the serpent, either the way of Cain or the way of Abel. The good news is Cain was a murderer. Cain was not saved, but There is room in heaven for murderers who repent, who ask God for forgiveness, who place their faith in God. Moses, David, Saul who became Paul, all were murderers who repented, who had true repentance and God saved. Simon the Zealot, Barabbas, the list goes on. There is room in heaven for anyone of any sin that would repent. So Abel's faith was a sacrificing faith. Briefly, his faith was also an attesting faith. I mentioned this dynamic last Sunday, and there'll be certainly more in the examples to come, but in the context of his faith being an attesting faith, the point is this. True faith is marked by obedience, and it is testified to by God himself. Look at the middle of verse 4. Through which, in other words, through faith, he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. Well, who gave him the testimony? Mom and dad, Adam and Eve, brothers and sisters? No, God himself, God testifying about his gifts. And as we've seen in Hebrews before, the author uses present tense. And I don't think the author here is even speaking in terms of historical present, meaning that God was testifying about his gifts back at the time. I think the author of Hebrews is saying God is testifying right here and right now about the acceptability of his sacrifice, of his gifts. This is God witnessing right here, right now, on his behalf. Abel is pleasing to God because of his obedient faith, because of his works which flow from his faith. Make no mistake about it. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone, apart from the works of the law, not as a result of works so that none should boast. And at the same time, it is as impossible to separate works from faith as it is to separate burning and shining from fire. That is what we see working out in the faith of Abel. And in the context of this attesting faith, assurance in the life of a believer is an inside job, the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. So Abel's faith is a sacrificing faith. It's an attesting faith. Finally, what we see at the end of verse 4, it is a speaking faith. Alfred Nobel was born October 21st, 1833 in Stockholm, Sweden. He was a chemist, inventor, engineer, philanthropist. He was an avid reader of literature. He was fluent in English, German, French, Swedish, and Russian. He had 350 patents, one of which made him one of the richest men in the world at the time, namely dynamite. When Nobel's brother, Ludwig, died, a French newspaper mistakenly thought he died, and the French newspaper described him as a merchant of death. Um, Not wanting to go down with that as his legacy, Nobel created a will that established what we now know as the Nobel Prizes in physics, chemistry, medicine, literature, and peace, and significant legacy it is. Um, When we think of that, what kind of legacy do you want to leave? What kind of legacy did this first example Abel leave behind? And what we see at the end of verse 4 was Abel left a legacy of a resounding voice that speaks from a dead man. The kind of eulogy for which we all, beloved, should pray. Look at the end of verse 4. God says, and through faith, that third little phrase, through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. Again, present tense he speaks yet today as i mentioned cain's dominant in genesis 4 god recorded what he had to say god didn't record what abel had to say in genesis 4 or anywhere else yet his voice lives on the voice of his blood in chapter 4 verse 10 of genesis god says what have you done the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground Abel speaks with a living voice through the centuries by virtue of his blood and by virtue of his legacy. Jesus calls Abel a prophet. In Matthew 23, verse 34 and 35, Jesus says to the leaders of Israel, Behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. And then he describes what they will do. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city that upon you may fall the guilt of all, watch this, the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah. Just on a side note, in the Hebrew Bible in the Hebrew order of what we have is the Old Testament it begins with Genesis the blood of righteous Abel and it finishes with Chronicles the blood of Zechariah from the beginning to the end of scripture the blood of the righteous prophets Abel's voice lives on and he's dubbed by God as a prophet of the God most high beloved that is the kind of eulogy that you and I should seek and pray for and desire In conclusion, James Marriott, speaking of modern times, describes a certain dynamic, a certain slice of the kind of legacy that every one of us, especially you young people, will leave behind. This is what Marriott wrote. He said, quote, on the internet, we live in the glare of the eternal present, condemned never to forget and never to be forgotten. Our words and our gestures fade in memory. Old photographs are lost, but online, every dumb picture, every unfinished conversation, and every idle feud is preserved. Living as we are in the land of no forgetting, online, we are not so much people as vast, unwieldy filing cabinets waiting to be browsed by our friends or raided by our enemies, end quote. A beloved Every one of us in this day and age will leave behind a legacy. What kind of legacy will we leave? I love to see the reality of the legacy my beloved Margie left behind. I am so blessed... And I've said this before, and I'm sorry, indulge me, I'll say it again. I'm so blessed when I hear the testimony of godly ladies that didn't have the blessing to meet my beloved on the side of eternity that come up and say, I never met your beloved Margie, but her life impacted me. God said to Cain, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. What does Abel's blood say? To be one, it says to God, vindicate me. To us, it says, imitate me. Not his behavior first and foremost, but his faith. Believe the truth. Agree with the truth. Trust the truth. And obey the truth. That's the outworking. That's what God would have you and my do with the word of God that we study even here. Beloved, please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for the reminder of your holiness. We thank you, Lord God, for the reminder of your judgment against sin. And Lord, we are eternally grateful. It begins at our new birth that we just thank you and are so amazed for your grace and for your mercy, for the way of escape, Lord Jesus, that you provide by virtue of your sinless, perfect life of obedience, by your voluntary death at the cross, by your victory over the grave, and by your seated even right now at the right hand of the Father interceding on our behalf. And thank you, Lord God, for who you are, what you do, and thank you for the examples that we have among our midst right here and right now at our beloved Santan Bible Church, and even from Abel and from the others heroes and heroines that will have the blessing to go through in this chapter. May we leave this as changed people, life sacrificing and property risking for your glory, for our joy, for the blessings of one another, and for a witness to a lost and dying world. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.